Please be seated. Mary's just read the longest gospel passage in the history of Episcopal liturgical practice, and I'm going to preach on the Hebrew scriptures this morning. <clears throat> but before I do that, I want to tell you that in the summer of 2016, the Bartz family moved to Jackson, Wyoming. And when we moved to Jackson, Wyoming, because we had spent so much time here as tourists recreating, I was pretty sure that I had done all the things that you do when you live in Jackson, Wyoming. I like to climb, I like to ski, I like to fish, I like to hike, I like to backpack, I like to get on the river, I like to swim in lakes. And I was pretty sure like, oh, I've, I've got it. I thought maybe I would add like a pair of Nordic skis to the quiver or a fat tire bike or something like that. But I was pretty convinced that I knew what was coming when it came to recreation and that I was ready for it all. And then in the spring of 2017, right around this time, maybe, oh, four to six weeks later than now, <clears throat> I got a call on a Thursday evening from Daryl Padel. Many of you know Daryl. She's around this congregation. She was a part of the search committee that called me, and she was like, hey, Jimmy, Kathy Lynch and I are going to go morel mushroom hunting tomorrow. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I like to hunt. I like mushrooms. I've never been morel mushroom hunting. But yeah, I'm up for it. If you recall, in the summer of 2016, the southern end of the Hoback Canyon burned in a fire called the Cliff Creek Fire. And so the idea, our objective, was to go down through the Hoback Canyon and into Bondurant, and you take that left turn, you go up the mountain roads, and we drove uh, Fred, Daryl's husband's truck, as far as we could up the mountain road, and we jumped out of the truck with our bags and our pocket knives, and I followed Daryl around for about a half an hour because as you know, like all hunting, there's something that happens to perspective. Your perspective has to change in order to encounter that which you are seeking to find. And so over the course of the next half an hour or so, I followed Daryl around the forest and she would say like, oh, hey, look over there. See all those mushrooms over there? And I would say, no, where? I don't see them. And she'd be like, right there. And I'd be like, right where? And she'd be like, right there. And eventually, over the course of the next half hour or 45 minutes, I kind of changed my perspective in such a way that I could see the morel mushrooms popping up in and around the burned out logs or the pine needles that had fallen. And I began to encounter a few of them. What I can tell you is when you go mushroom hunting, you have to nearly completely change your perspective. We spend about 364 and a half days, those of us who live in this valley, with our perspective either out here or because of the grandeur of creation out there. 
But when you are hunting morel mushrooms, your perspective needs to go to the forest floor. And what you find so quickly as you move around the forest looking for these mushrooms is that the the floor of the forest tells an amazing story about life. There are all sorts and kinds of creatures that crawl and slither and make their home in the decay that is the forest floor. What you also learn very quickly is that the floor of the forest also tells a compelling story about death. What I've learned is that the forest floor in the valley in which we live is covered in bones. Now, I did a little bone research this week because of this reading that we have from the prophet Ezekiel about the valley of the dry bones. And what I've learned is that these bones on the floor of the forest last anywhere from 20 to 80 years. And so as you meander through the forest, foraging for mushrooms, you are the inheritor of an incredible story, a decades-long story, nearly a century-long story of life and death on the ground upon which you walk. The prophet Ezekiel tells an amazing story of a dream or a vision that he has. And we're going to talk about that in a sec. But before we do, we should talk about the prophet himself because he's an interesting character within the prophets of Israel. Ezekiel lives in a time of what scholars call um, the first exile. So we know that Israel comes in and occupies the land, the land that God has promised them, the land of milk and honey. And they occupy that place for decades, even centuries, until at some point in time, they are displaced by the Babylonian army. They are defeated and dispersed, and 3,000 Israelites are taken into Babylon in exile, and enslaved again, which is far more than insult to injury. It is horror of horrors that is happening to Israel. And it is during this first exile that Ezekiel comes on the scene and begins to prophesy. Scholar Eugene Peterson says that Ezekiel prophesies to two constituencies of people. The first group that he prophesies to are those in denial. And the second constituency that he prophesies to are those in despair. Ezekiel's prophecy to those in denial sound like you would imagine it sounds like. Israel, you're clueless here. You better shape up. You better wake up. God is coming. 
God is going to destroy you if you don't shape up and begin to listen to the commandments that God has given you. That's what Ezekiel's prophecy sounds like to those in denial. The piece of prophecy that we have this morning from the 37th chapter of Ezekiel is prophecy to those in despair. And before we really get into the vision itself, I want to give you a funny tidbit about Ezekiel. Ezekiel is incredibly descriptive when he begins to prophesy about the throne of God. He goes into great detail to narrate just what that throne and that royal chamber is like. And Isaiah, probably the most prominent prophet in all of Israel and all of its history, is not very descriptive about the throne of God. There are a few details in there, but he doesn't talk about it very much at all. And what is in this wonderful, beautiful, somewhat comedic turn that plays into our culture itself, Israel hoping to restore the reputation of their most important prophet says about this comparison between Ezekiel and Isaiah, Israel says, well, here's the deal. It's Isaiah is not as descriptive as Ezekiel because Isaiah was, in his role as a prophet, so used to being at the foot of the throne of God that it was so commonplace for his experience that he didn't describe the throne in detail. And it is Ezekiel who was this country bumpkin who didn't spend very much time in front of the throne of God that goes on and on about the details of the royal throne. Israel, in an effort to restore the reputation of Isaiah, describes Ezekiel as kind of a redneck prophet. It means in this place that Ezekiel is one of us. Here we sit in a tiny little cow town in western Wyoming, and Ezekiel is our guy. In the beginning of the 37th chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, he begins to tell the story of a magnificent vision that he encounters. He says that in a moment in time, he was delivered into a valley and spread across the floor of the entire valley were dry bones. The bones covered every aspect of the valley's floor. Now, what we might not hear, but is absolutely true about the story, is that the bones that covered the valley floor, this valley of dry bones, were not the bones of animals. Rather, they were the bones of the sons of Israel who were defeated by Babylon in battle. 
The vision as it begins is a vision of utter despair. It is a reminder of death, destruction, humiliation, and even the abandonment of a relationship with God. And then God begins to speak to Ezekiel. God says two things. The first is a wonderful question. Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel, is there any hope left within us? Ezekiel, can death return to life? Ezekiel, can despair return to hope? And Ezekiel's response is humble. You know. You know. You know, Lord, whether or not these bones can live. And then the God of Israel does what the God of Israel does in such a beautiful and magnificent way. He calls Ezekiel back into partnership with him in just the way that Ezekiel has been embodying that partnership. He says to the prophet, prophet, prophesy to those bones. Ezekiel, do your thing. Tell those bones to come back to life. And then it begins to happen as Ezekiel begins to prophesy to these bones. Sinew grows to connect bone to bone. Muscles begin to cover the skeletal remains. Skin comes across. And the sons of Israel are resurrected in a beautiful, glorious, mystical, confusing, creative, even trippy way. It is a magnificent story, one of the best in all of the Hebrew scriptures where God comes to this prophet in his lowest moment and says, do you have hope? And when the prophet responds to God, hope is in you. And God says, you are my partner. Prophesy to these bones. Tell me that hope can emerge in the face of despair. You and I, we together in this church, have spent the last four weeks, now five, focusing on the practice of surrender, putting it to our minds, inviting our hearts to feel the feelings, those times in our lives, those moments in our lives when we were most despairing. I know because of the fact that this church is populated by human beings that each of us 
all of us have experienced moments of despair. And the move that Ezekiel makes, this move of surrender, this desire to reconnect with God in this moment of despair, God, it is you who provide hope. God then re-invites the prophet back into relationship to do the things that he was created to do. The same paradigm exists for you and for me. Now, here's the deal. If you find yourself right now in a moment of despair, then you can ignore what I'm about to say. But even if you're just one click removed from despair, I invite you to listen to what I have to say next. The first is, the first move when we are despairing, and I don't tell this to despairing people because it doesn't make sense when you're stuck, when you're isolated, when you're in that moment of despair. So those of us who are not despairing, those of us who are one click north of despair or awesome, and everyone in between, listen up. The first move is that openness to reconnect with God. The moment of surrender, God, it is you know. You know. If hope exists, it is your job, God, to bring that back to my threshold. God responds. God doesn't respond inviting us to do or be something that we are not. God doesn't say, Ezekiel, engage in a practice of orthopedic surgery and put these bones back together. God invites Ezekiel to be the person that God has made him to be. He says, prophesy to these bones, prophet. That's what you and I can expect. An invitation from God to embody our lives in the way that we have embodied them. And then, over time, not instantaneously, in the way that it unfolds in the story itself, the story is a vision, the story is a dream, but over time, as we re-engage that partnering relationship with God, we do find that our life can be reoriented and our life can be restored and we can find ourselves whole again. So church, what am I hoping to leave with you? What am I hoping to carry away this week in my own heart? I'm hoping to carry away a sense that when I am despairing, I might know the first move. And that first move is surrender. And I'm hoping in that place of surrender that my mind and my heart might be open enough, open enough and soft enough to hear God's invitation come toward me, come toward you, 
once again, one more time. And that you and I might have the courage in that moment to pick ourselves up again. I don't mean to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. I mean to pick up our God-given identity, whether you are a prophet or a preacher or a teacher or an attorney or a grandparent, that we might reassume that identity and be hopeful and emboldened as God comes to meet us there. Amen.